0: What is my purpose? You pass butter. Oh my god. Yeah, welcome to the club, pal. Man, I tell you what, Hank, about that ain't no meaning of life, man. It's like this, man. He's like a butterfly flapping his wings deep down in the forest, man. they going to cause a tree fall like 5,000 miles away, man. Nobody see it, nobody don't, don't even happen. You know, the baby's born into this world, you know, they don't got any friends, got nothing but to go come in and like, find out all about him. No the evil, man. It was just that he was all alone, always by himself. Never anyone to share the game man who lived in dreams, that's who he was. You know, even though it's 2016, it doesn't really feel that different. It never really does, at least not for the first couple months or so. But let me tell you guys, it's been a fantastic holiday break. I'm still really trying to piece together everything that's happened over the last nine days or so. And it's all really a foggy haze. Especially New Year's Eve. That day's the most hazy. I joked on New Year's on my Facebook page that I was reminded of Socrates and the Symposium. And the Symposium is a Socratic dialogue set in an all-night drinking party. By the end of the party, Socrates is the last man standing, still drinking, and still trying to talk about philosophy. On that day, I certainly felt like Socrates. So much to talk about but we'll have to save it for another time. I do hope that everyone enjoyed their holiday break, though, and had a fantastic Christmas and New Year's. However, upon returning home, what really brought a smile to my face was just the amount of traction this podcast is starting to get. The wheels are in motion and headed in the right direction, and I honestly couldn't be happier about that. However, before we move into today's topic... I wanted to spend some time talking a little bit about a few things from the last episode. One thing I wanted to bring up was my portrayal, I suppose, of Socrates himself. I talked about how we had kind of dubious evidence for Socrates' existence, mainly because he didn't write anything down himself, but we do very much readily know that Socrates was, in fact, a real person. The point more so I wanted to get across was his enigmatic nature that the fact is we will never be able to get inside his head and truly understand what he thought because all we know about him is what he chose to share with other people and what other people chose to write down. I just thought it wasn't fair to portray one of my favorite philosophers as potentially not real Socrates was indeed a very real man, but a man that will be forever shrouded in mystery. The next thing I wanted to talk about was the EU debate, which was raging in both the comments section and the actual podcast itself. Things were getting a little heated, but not overly so in my mind. I just wanted to take a brief opportunity to say I understand that passions run hot about this issue. And we're certainly going to be talking about a lot of other issues in which passions run hot. And that's perfectly acceptable. It's perfectly acceptable to be passionate about an issue. The one thing I wanted to say is don't let your passion give way to anger. Because anger leads to fear, fear leads to hate, and so on and so forth. Well, instead of quoting from Star Wars, let me quote from the man who will be the subject of our next engagement episode. Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius once said that the consequences of anger are always greater than the causes. Just something to keep in mind moving forward. The last thing I wanted to say is that I'm going to try and cut down the time a little bit on future podcasts. I never intended for the show to be a 90-minute long show like the last two episodes were. I always wanted it to be 60 minutes. So that's the benchmark that I'm aiming for. Now, without further ado, let me welcome you to the fourth episode of Naples Ultra, Ideological Eras. I have to admit something to you guys. I always like to start an episode off with an admission, and that is... Sometimes, I admit to getting worked up in the almost sports-like aspect of politics. You know, the whole, Two heavyweight champions of theory gonna throw down in the realm of public debate. Tune in this Sunday, 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 for all the tension and high-flying antics. In fact, I often joke to my friends, many of whom are avid sports fans, that my favorite sport has always been politics. The only difference is who wins the presidential election in 2016 is actually going to have an impact on our lives, unlike who wins the Super Bowl in 2016. Sometimes I admit to treating politics almost like a game, and I don't know if you listeners out there feel the same way, but sometimes it's difficult not to get wrapped up in that aspect of politics, the horse race aspect. Who's up in the polls? How are they going to target Latino voters? Sometimes, it's difficult not to put on your team jersey and get out there and root for the home team, so to speak. It's exhilarating, almost like going to see a sports game, a hockey game, a football game. There's an energy in the crowd that just sweeps you away, and you get caught up in the cheering and excitement if things are going the way of the home team, but... You also get caught up in the anger and bitter disappointment if it does not. I've personally been involved with more than a few political campaigns, and when you get so invested in something like that, the only thing that matters is winning. Not the party, not the candidate, not even the values you are fighting for. You just want to win. It takes a lot to put yourself out of that frame of mind and ask yourself, what am I fighting for? Am I fighting for something I truly believe in? Or am I fighting simply to win? Simply for power? I've been thinking about this question a lot recently. And I wondered if people had always struggled with this conflict between what is right and moral and what will gain you power and prestige. Is politics about power Or is it about ideas? After ruminating on this for a while, I feel like our era is potentially the only era which represents this conflict between power and ideals. That politics in previous human societies has always been about power. And don't get me wrong, it's still about power today. But at least now, we understand that if politics is exclusively about power, then people suffer. To explain what I mean, we have to go back, as we often do here on Naples Ultra. When we think about previous societies that came before us, politics and ideology were absent from many of them, except for a few cases. Of course, these ancient monarchs and ancient theological societies did have an ideology. It was indeed present, but it was not an ideology which people could actually engage with or have much say in changing. And to stymie political opposition, they used various means of appeals to God, to state, or coercive methods. So, I believe it's safe to say that for the overwhelming number of cases in ancient civilizations, politics was about power and nakedly about Power To examine the question of whether or not politics has ever been about more than naked power, we have to look at two different cases which stick out like sore thumbs. These are, of course, Athenian democracy and the Roman Republic. There's no question about it, at least in my mind. Athenian democracy is insanely interesting. But for me we can't really think of it as the same as our democracy. It wasn't like you voted for a president or a party. In fact, there were no political parties in Athens. You instead voted for an individual. Think of it more like a municipal election. You're voting for city councilors and a mayor who may or may not belong to a certain ideology But it doesn't explicitly state that underneath the banner in which they are running. At least that's the way municipal elections run in North America. I know that in other countries, party politics are intertwined all the way down to the municipal level. But for those of you who have voted in a municipal election before for your mayor or city councilors, think about how you voted in that election Maybe you voted for your buddy down the street who's making a run for a city councilor position. So you support them as a friend. Maybe you vote for that local business leader who is always lending a helping hand in the community. Maybe you vote for the farmer who wants to protect his lands from condominium development. Or maybe you vote for that charismatic individual who has a great plan to solve that irrigation problem your city has been facing for years. The point here is that your concerns are local in this election. For the most part, you aren't campaigning under an ideological banner. You're campaigning for a prominent role in your community. This is what Athenian democracy was like in my mind. It wasn't an ideological affair, but a local one. You may have had people running for purposes higher than themselves or for altruistic reasons, but these weren't ideological reasons, at least in the sense that we understand them today. To find a political system which really saw the first signs of ideological concerns and party politics, we have to look at the Roman Republic. Now, the Roman Republic was an extremely complicated system, that at first glance looks like the most unwieldy and baffling system of government ever produced. But to the people at the time, it made perfect sense. It takes a lot to wrap your head around this system of government. In fact, it reminds me a bit of my own workspace. To the outside observer, it looks messy, cluttered, and unwieldy. But for me... I know exactly where everything is and where it's supposed to go. Organized chaos, one of my bosses once called it. And I think that's a good phrase for the Roman Republic. Organized chaos. What I don't want to do here, though, is get lost in the weeds of trying to unpeel this Roman governmental system. So, I'll give it at a brief glance. There were two main legislative bodies in Rome. The Senate and the People's Assembly. The Senate representing the elite in society, while the People's Assembly represents the not so elite. The Roman Republican system was based off traditions, and these traditions were extremely sacred. While the majority of these traditions were not written down, they were known, understood, and followed rigorously by the people Of the time. These were referred to collectively as the Mos Maiorum, translated as the way of the ancestors. This is important information to know because it was from the Mos Maiorum that the Senate drew all of its power. In fact, legislatively, the Senate held no power in Rome. When the Senate issued a decree, technically it was non binding. In fact, it was literally called a senatus consulta, which means advice from the Senate. However, due to the most maiorum, these decrees were taken pretty much as law. As well, the Senate couldn't veto legislation, but no legislation was ever enacted without first approval of the Senate, again, due to the most maiorum's binding traditions. Technically, all the legislative power came from the People's Assemblies. And the most power in the People's Assembly was held by their representatives, called Tribunes of the Plebs. All in all, there were ten tribunes, and these tribunes acted as intermediaries between the people and the Senate. Tribunes could veto one another, as well as veto a senatus consulta. They even technically had the power to pass laws without the approval of the Senate. However, again, these unwritten rules and traditions of the Mos maiorum prevented tribunes from advancing without Senate approval. That was until one man decided to overturn the apple cart. This man was Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus, and taken with his brother Gaius, these men represent the first major injection of ideology into Roman politics. Spoiler alert, it did not end well. For those of you who don't know the story of the Gracchus brothers, I don't want to delve too deeply into it here, because their story could be a podcast in and of itself. And, in fact, it is. For those of you who are wanting to learn more about Roman history, podcaster Dan Carlin does an amazing series on the decline and fall of the Roman Republic on his Hardcore History podcast. He starts his story off with the tale of the two Gracchus brothers. Unfortunately, this podcast series is no longer free, but well worth the cost of those who want to learn more about this story beyond what I'm going to tell you here. The story of Tiberius starts with a land reform bill. For the majority of the Republican period of Rome, the only ones capable of serving in the military were land-holding males. However, by the time of Tiberius, 150 BC or so, Rome had grown so wealthy and acquired so many slaves that the small family farm was dying and being replaced with massive land estates farmed predominantly by slaves. Meaning the pool for Rome to draw upon for its soldiers was dwindling. Something needed to change, and Tiberius sought to change it. Proposing various land reform bills, Tiberius tried to break up these big landholders. However, the Senate wouldn't hear of it, and blocked him at every turn. Frustrated and fed up, Tiberius broke the Mos maiorum and passed his land reform bill in the People's Assembly without the use of the Senate. Tiberius paid dearly for this, as the Senate enacted the first form of political violence in Rome and killed Tiberius, dumping his body in the Tiber River so it would never receive a proper burial. Shortly after this, the Senate passed his land reform bill anyway, knowing that it needed to be done. After his brother was murdered by the Senate, Tiberius's brother Gaius took his place. Gaius was even more extreme than his brother and was by all accounts a brilliant orator capable of manipulating crowds to his will. He quickly gained support throughout Rome, including support in the Senate. And almost by accident, the first political parties in Rome emerged. The Senate split into three sides. The optimists who supported the Senate and societal elites, the populares, who supported the plebs, and the moderates, who held no side. Eventually, Gaius was to meet the same end as his brother, murdered by the Senate. His downfall was caused by one of the most ingenious and cynical political tricks I have ever heard about. The Senate supported a tribune candidate by the name of Marcus Livius Drusus and in response to Gaius's popularity they used Drusus to just outpromise him Gaius promised two colonies and the senate turned him down Drusus promised 12 colonies and the senate granted his request knowing full well once they had gotten rid of Gaius they would never have to make good on their promises on a side note i feel this is what happened to the ndp in the last Canadian election. The NDP promised to bring in 10,000 Syrian refugees and the Liberals promised 25,000 in response. A promise which they have uh, so far broken. In any case, the Senate scheme worked and Gaius' popularity waned. He was unable to achieve re-election and once out of office, the Senate saw their chance and killed Gaius. Before you know it, the political stage was set for a showdown, an ideological showdown. You have the optimates supporting the top-tier society and the populares supporting the people of the republic. Or, at least, this is how I used to think. For, you see, even though these men belong to an ideological side, the more I study the era, the more it becomes clear to me that these men only used ideology for power. The only person I feel to be true in his idealism is Tiberius, who I feel genuinely wanted to solve a pressing issue in Roman society, but was blocked and forced to use other methods to get his legislation through. As you progress through the story of the late Republic, you'll find that the optimates and populares come and go. However, what does not change is their methods for destruction of one another or even the actual legislation brought forth by both sides. They become almost indistinguishable from one another. The only deciding factor for which side is on top is the side with the most powerful men on it. And some men would vacillate between populare and optimate as time went on. A perfect example of this being Pompey the Great, who started off as an optimate, shifted over to Populare, and then finished off as an optimate once again, really changing sides as the political winds blew one way or another. The final point here is this. Power in Roman politics was not derived from the strength of your ideas and ideology, but by the strength of patrons on your side turning back to the question I asked earlier, am I fighting for something I truly believe in or am I fighting simply to win or for power, I don't believe Roman politicians ever really bothered with this question. It's clear to me that they were fighting for power and only power. Power, it seems, was based off who you know, not what people believed. From this story, I want to take away two things. First off, I want to make it clear that, for whatever reason it seems, human civilization was just not ready for ideology in the sense that we understand it today, and trying to force it along just ended in disaster. But the second thing I want to take away from this is that you have to beware of the people who use ideology to veil their true intentions. As well, there are still democracies today which function less on ideology and more on who you know and how you get there. I see this aspect present in older countries which have just recently developed democracy. A prime example of this would be India, the world's largest democracy. And I remember back in October of 2014... I was in Los Angeles visiting my in-laws, and at the same time, India was undergoing an election, and my father-in-law was just glued to the TV, trying to get updates of everything that was happening back in his home country. As the results were coming in, it was clear he was not happy, because the party that won with a majority, I might add, was a party called the BJP. And the BJP are a Hindu nationalist party. And my father-in-law, being Sikh, was worried that the Hindu nationalist party would encroach and diminish the rights of Sikhs in Indian society. As well as strengthen Hindi as the country's national language at the expense of India's other dozens of languages, including his own native language of Punjabi. Jeez, I just looked the BJP up on Wikipedia, and they have a total membership of 110 million. And that just blows my mind. That's like three times the population of Canada. That just gives you a scale of how massive this election was. But what I really want to focus on is what my father-in-law told me about how elections in India are conducted. That they can be extremely corrupt affairs, full of coercion and bribery. For example, armed thugs surrounding polling booths is not an uncommon scene. But the biggest factor to who wins is who you know, because in Indian society, the bonds of family and friendship transcend the bonds of ideology. What this ultimately means, though, that it's not the side with the best ideas or the strongest argument which wins out. To find when we in the West truly met our ideological era, we have to look at the 20th century. When you think about the era before the 20th century, in the 19th century, what do you think about? You think about Napoleon, you think about Otto von Bismarck, you think about Karl Marx, and it was through these philosophers, conquerors, and statesmen that the seeds for ideology were laid but they didn't sprout to fruition until a century later. The 19th century was the last century of Realpolitik, which is a term that means the politics of realism. It infers a hard-headed pragmatism that what's good and what's moral doesn't come into the political calculus. Rather, the purpose of the state is to protect itself and to expand its power. Whether those means happen to be through diplomacy or war depends on the circumstances and the goals trying to be achieved. This is a very famous period in human history, often called the Iron and Blood Period. The title comes from a very famous quote by German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, who said, Not by speeches and votes of the majority are the greatest questions of our time decided, but by iron and blood. There's no question that Otto von Bismarck was right in his assertion. In fact, Europe spent so much iron and blood trying to resolve the great questions of their time that, eventually, Europe had no more iron and no more blood to spare, because it had all been spent during World War I. World War I shattered the iron and blood period, and the period of realpolitik, at least of naked realpolitik. Because you will talk to people today who make very good arguments that we are still living in a world of realpolitik, just that our leaders aren't saying it openly. I don't subscribe to that particular view, but I think it's very legitimate. Regardless though, because of the horrific nature of World War One and the amount of men and money spent trying to achieve victory The war had to be for something greater than just territorial gain. It needed to be a war for freedom, for democracy, for the independence of nations. Some of those things happened and some did not. But what it did do is ensure that people would fight and strive for more than just king and country. It opened the door for ideology. Before you know it, competing ideologies were springing up left, right, and center. And this sets the stage for what I believe to be the first true ideological conflict, World War II. After all, you had these three different ideologies. Liberal democracy, represented by the United Kingdom, the United States, and the West. You had fascism, represented by Germany and Italy. And then, of course, you had communism, represented by the Soviet Union. World War II knocked out the fascists, and subsequently, the Cold War knocked out the communists. Apparently, when it comes to ideologies, there can only be one. But even though now we live in an era with one dominant, overarching ideology, sort of this liberal democracy with neoliberal economic policies... Ideology still drives our politics more than any other force, I submit. We read a question from Jake last week in which he lamented the lack of ideology in politics. I disagree slightly with him because I do believe we are still extremely ideological, as politics aren't driven by generals and armies as they were in ancient Rome, or by family and cultural ties as they are in India. Don't get me wrong, though. Knowing someone and having great connections is certainly a leg up in Western politics, but it does not guarantee victory, and it isn't the end-all be-all factor, as we see politicians with stellar connections fall all the time and unknown quantities rise up from seemingly nowhere. What we should be doing, though, is lamenting the lack of diversity in terms of ideology. And that's where I 100% agree with Jake, and that's why Jeremy Corbyn is such a breath of fresh air. Because he throws a wrench into this one ideology to rule them all sort of mentality. Specifically, Jeremy targets that neoliberal economic ideology. Jeremy, coming from a time before Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, the two main figureheads who ushered in this era of neoliberal economics, which are defined by unfettered capitalistic ideologies, such as free trade, union busting, and economic deregulation. Jeremy, on the other hand, has an entirely different economic worldview. He's not defined by unfettered capitalism, free trade, and complete deregulation. Whether you agree with Jeremy or disagree with him, you have to concede he's bringing forth an ideology which hasn't been seen in quite some time, and that only helps broaden our horizons. On the flip side of economic policies and ideologies, you have social policies and ideologies, and these are certainly dominated by an orthodoxy which definitely lacks diversity. Which is inherently ironic, because our social policy today is all about diversity. But we will have to save that conversation for another time. I would like to end our topical discussion today by returning to that question I asked at the start of the episode. Am I fighting for something I truly believe in, or am I simply fighting for power? As we move forward, it seems that... Concerns of power and domination within the political realm are at the very least becoming secondary to morals and ideology. And that's a very distinct feature of our time that may have never existed before in human history. Of course, the most just ideology or the best argument doesn't always win, as there are still plenty of variables in the political system, such as money, such as the media, such as politicians lying to your face. But if you can spot these variables, then you have the power to factor them out and examine an argument's core at its purest. Then you can make an informed decision whether you agree or disagree. And fostering this skill is one of the main missions of this podcast because this skill is critical in becoming an independent thinker and an informed citizen. And with that, we are at the end of this segment. I hope you enjoyed this discussion of ideology, both past and present, and I hope it gives you some guideposts moving into the future. Stay tuned for the second segment of episode 4 of Naples Ultra. Welcome back everyone to the second segment of Plus Ultra, and I'm thinking of adding something to this segment, which is a one or two minute discussion about something in the world that is happening currently. And today I wanted to talk about Saudi Arabia severing diplomatic ties with Iran. So if you don't know what happened, in a nutshell, Saudi Arabia underwent a mass execution of political dissidents all of whom were beheaded by a sword, which may or may not sound like someone else you know of. This included the execution of a prominent Shiite cleric in Saudi Arabia. This execution led to some particularly violent protests in Shiite Iran against the Saudi Arabian government and condemnations from the Iranian government to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, in turn, severs diplomatic ties with Iran, and here we are today. To me, this isn't that surprising, because I see the whole series of conflicts going on throughout the Middle East as almost like a cold war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, both of whom are vying to be the dominant power in the Islamic world. Two things I want to say about this. First, I thought this series of events would stop Saudi Arabia from getting so much slack from the West. I've expressed my particular distaste for our two-faced relations with Saudi Arabia. And indeed, there was some condemnations from various leaders both in Canada, the United States, and throughout the world. However, on the Republican side, we continue to see steadfast support of Saudi Arabia. And I know Iran is our geopolitical enemy. R referring to the collective West. However, I would much rather have Iran as an ally than Saudi Arabia. And honestly, I don't think it would be that hard. One of the reasons you get so much death-to-America rhetoric out of Iran is because we're allied with their mortal enemy, Saudi Arabia. If we turned the tables on that relationship, I bet Iran would be our best friends in the world. That's not to say the Iranian regime is some kind of paragon of virtue. No, both these regimes are repressive and immoral. But let me ask you, who would you rather have as an ally? The country fighting ISIS or the country doing absolutely nothing to stop ISIS? The second thing I wanted to say is that oddly enough, people in Canada and specifically Alberta are kind of happy about this because instability in the Middle East Drives up oil prices. And considering that oil is an integral part of the Canadian economy, the higher the oil prices, the better we're doing. It would be nice, though, if the world eventually realized that it would be better to buy their oil from nice, friendly Canada rather than the Middle East or Venezuela. Just food for thought. Anyway, enough of that. It's time for mail! I always remembered, wasn't it Blue's Clues or something? where they had, like, a song for the mail coming in. Maybe I should get a song. Anyway, our first question comes from Rin Matthews. Rin writes, Dear Spencer, do you think fascism could happen again? The leading causes of fascism in the 20th century, thinly failed bigotry, anger over ineffectual bureaucracies, as well as the economic hardship and a desire for strong leaders seem to be leading us back to where we were a century ago. A few politicians, such as the leader of the National Front Party in France, Vladimir Putin in Russia, and a certain American politician who will not be named, are truly reminiscent of people like Mussolini, Franco, and Hitler. My question is how possible do you think it is that these politicians could turn their countries into autocratic regimes? Putin seems to have already done that, and I was wondering if you think it's possible in these other countries. So let's talk about that American politician first and name him. We're talking about Donald Trump here. That's that's who we're talking about. And it's strange we haven't really talked about Donald Trump on this podcast too much yet. We must be the only place in the world that's not talking about Donald Trump. But I guess that's about to change. And I haven't talked about Trump too much because I'm still kind of waiting to see how this whole thing pans out. What I will say, though, is that I do not like Donald Trump at all. But what I do understand is his appeal. I get why people are drawn to him. A few months ago, when Ben Carson was the front runner, and him and Donald Trump were relatively even in the polls. I just couldn't get what people saw in Ben Carson. I didn't see his appeal, and I thought that he would fade away after a period of time, while Donald Trump would remain hard and strong. And that appears to be what has happened. Rin mentions, though, some of Donald Trump's attributes which make him so appealing. One, he's a strong leader, and two, he's an outsider of the inefficient Washington bureaucracy. You combine that with the fact that he is so wealthy that it's inconceivable that he could be bought off by the inefficient bureaucracy. When you take that in combination with his excellent marketing skills and his ability to tap into the primal fears of his audience, you really do have a perfect storm. When it comes to him being a fascist dictator, though, I don't think it's possible at least through conventional means. This is one of the things I never understood about Americans. On both sides of the political spectrum, they seem so terrified that someone will become a dictator and replace the democratically elected government. Yet, at least through conventional political means, the United States is the country most insulated from that possibility. If Donald Trump were to become a fascist dictator, he would need to do it through unconventional methods, meaning a military coup or something along those lines. The most realistic method I see, though, would be if he were elected and then declared some sort of state of emergency and was able to grant himself extra constitutional powers, then just not give those powers up. But I don't think that Donald Trump will become president In fact, I'm not even sure he wants to become president. What we can say for certain, though, is that he has an extremely large possibility of winning the Republican nomination. If he does that, and he's serious about becoming president, what I think he'll do is just reverse a lot of his statements. His statements about Muslims and immigration and so on and so forth. Something he is certainly capable of doing and has done several times before throughout the duration of this campaign. One instance, his remarks about Ted Cruz. He called him a maniac, and then the next day, ah, he's a great guy, he's fine. And everyone just brushes it over. So I think Donald Trump has a low probability of becoming a fascist dictator. And the same goes for the ultra-nationalist right-wing parties that exist throughout the UK and the EU such as the National Front in France, the UKIP Party in the UK, and so on and so forth. Putin, though, is certainly a dictator. Whether or not you want to call him fascist is up to you. I would not call him a fascist. I don't think he quite suits the ideology. But there's no question about it. He pulls the strings throughout Russia. And his party, Yedinaya Russia, or United Russia, is pretty much just a front for Putin. Putin actually has the choice of deciding who he runs against, and that's a pretty sweet perk to have. But honestly, though, I think Putin is not as smart as a lot of people seem to think he is. Most of his strategy seems to be made up off the fly. I don't feel like he has some kind of overarching goal that he's working towards. Mainly, his strategy seems to be, well, what will piss off the Americans next? Oh, I know, causing instability in the Ukraine. Oh, hmm, how about this? How about we do some airstrikes in Syria? I bet that'll throw him for a loop. What he'll do next? Who knows? But to answer the core of your question, I think it's possible that it could happen in other countries, but unlikely. That is because the conditions you listed, the thinly veiled bigotry, was at the time completely overt bigotry. And it's true, we don't live in maybe the best economic times, but it's not like I gotta take my wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks to the bakery in order to buy a loaf of bread. With that being said, if current trends do continue, yes, I definitely think it'll become more and more likely that we will see extremist regimes. Thanks for the question, Rin. I hope that was a satisfactory answer. Our next email comes from Dieter who writes in some feedback about episode 2. He writes, The whole idea of empowering secular democratic groups in the Middle East sounds like you would just end up installing a new Hussein or Gaddafi in the region. Again, with the added courtesy of the United States tint. Which, in the long term, didn't work out last time. So, there is no real reason it would now. If Muslims want to become secular democracies, they will first have to stand up and speak out in favor of this en masse and act. Unfortunately, this is not something I see coming up too often yet, as voicing the wrong opinion gets you in quite some trouble easily in many Middle Eastern countries. I think that the most that can be done by Europe and the United States is protecting free speech, so the people voicing democratic values can speak and be heard without fear of reprisal. This may be what you meant with empowering secular democratic groups. If most Muslims do not want these values, then there is not much to be done that could truly help the region in the long term. Thanks for the feedback, Dieter. And you're right in the sense that there is absolutely no easy answers here. And if the people in the region don't want democracy, we can't force it on them. We talked today about countries whose politics are driven by cultural, familial, or religious ties rather than ideology. And just about any democracy we set up in the Middle East is going to be like this. It is not going to be a democracy based on political ideology. But I do believe that type of democracy is better than none at all. What I don't believe in though is using military means to achieve it. I have a very laissez-faire stance when it comes to foreign policy. I generally believe it is best to let countries run their own affairs and let them figure things out for themselves. However, if they ask for support, we should try and give them support in the best of our ability. Where we run into problems, though, is assuming that these countries want our support and want our help. For example, when the Americans invaded Iraq, it was assumed that the Iraqi people would come out cheering in the streets for the Americans as they overthrew Saddam Hussein. As we all know, that didn't happen. In fact, I feel that the worst sin the Americans committed in that war was somehow managing to make a dictator look good in comparison to what they have now. What I really like though, Dieter, is your idea of protecting those who speak up in favor of democratic values in places where it is difficult to do so. How we do that though is probably a little bit more tricky. Do we offer them asylum? Do we offer them intellectual support? Do we give them rousing speeches in the UN? I'm not sure, but it's a good idea. Thanks for the feedback though, Dieter. I hope that was satisfactory. The next question comes from Michael Simmons, and it's a long one, so I'm going to cut a little bit out of it. He writes, Hi Spencer, I have a question regarding a point you made towards the end of your last podcast on freedom of speech. The question is, does the power or influence of an individual or group factor into the degree to which people are allowed to respond to their speech? It seems to me that if a person or group has a huge amount of power, like money or political influence, then certain responses that would cross into the realm of actions can be justified against their speech, especially if it can be proven that their speech is causing some real harm beyond simply offending someone. I'll give an easy example. Donald Trump. Normally what he says can be easily ignored or even laughed at, but for some reason he's leading the Republican primaries for now at least. Even if the polls are inaccurate and Trump has only a small following who would actually vote for him when the time comes, the fact remains that he has a national and often international platform to spew his nonsense. I think it is a fair point to say that when he promotes Islamophobia, he is at best not being helpful by promoting this kind of senseless hate that prevents people on both sides from trying to find real solutions to end this, and at worst he is playing directly into the hands of terrorist organizations such as ISIS and helping them to recruit. I could also point to the rise in hate crimes against Muslims in the United States, although it's harder to say Donald Trump's speech is responsible for that, especially in light of the San Bernardino shootings. Now that I've explained the background, I can circle back to the original question. What should we be allowed to do in response to this? I think a simple war of words won't work because, as you said when talking about Citizens United, the person with the bigger megaphone can't effectively drown out the other voices. I think the petition to have Trump banned from entering the UK for hate speech goes way too far, and I'm certainly not advocating for violence in any way, shape, or form against him or his supporters. I would like to see more actions taken like the ones back over the summer when he first made his disparaging comments against Mexicans, calling them things like rapists. Companies such as Macy's and Univision cut off business deals with him because of the perceived damage his brand will do in light of public opinion. Does taking actions such as these in general against the reputation or assets of a powerful person, violate their freedom of speech? Or does that risk come with the territory of being a public figure? Trump was an example, but there are plenty of other examples such as Paula Deen and Donald Sterling. Please let me know your thoughts. I love the podcasts so far. Best regards, Mike Simmons. Great question, Mike, and a complicated one because I do have mixed feelings about this. I think one of the core aspects of your question is, is there a difference between public figures and private citizens? And that's a really interesting point. And honestly, I don't know where I'd fall in that discussion. So I think I'd like to make it the question for this week's podcast. Digging deeper, though, into some of the layers of this question, first off, as a business, you certainly have the right to choose who you're going to do business with, and who you're not going to do business with. And when it comes to freedom of speech, one thing you definitely don't control or have the right to control is how people think about you after you have expressed yourself. But let's be honest, companies such as Macy's and Univision cutting off these business deals probably did absolutely no damage to Trump. Maybe it did a little damage business-wise, but the guy's still extraordinarily wealthy. So all in all, these companies cutting off their business deals were token moves at best. On a side note, one of my pet peeves are people who boycott businesses based off the opinions of the people who run them. Because it's always some stupid half-hearted gesture, like one guy somewhere within the company said something bad about gay people. So instead... I'm going to go shop at Macy's, because they dumped Donald Trump, completely ignoring the fact that probably everything in there was produced in a Chinese sweatshop, which does far more actual damage in terms of human welfare than one guy's opinion about gay marriage. Then they go off thinking that they have the moral high ground and that they've somehow produced more good in the world, while completely ignoring the bad they have done by shopping at these large retailers. In fact, if you wanted to maintain the moral high ground, then your purchasing options are severely limited. And if you're going to go that way, you have my utmost applause, because I know I couldn't do it. But thinking you're some paragon of virtue because you didn't go to Chick-fil-A because the CEO said something negative about gay marriage, but at the same time, everything you own is produced in a Chinese sweatshop, that kind of gets under my skin. Anyway, sorry about the tangent. Let's get back on topic. In terms of the harm that Donald Trump's speech may or may not cause, I hold his followers far more accountable than Donald Trump himself. I believe you always hold the instigators of action responsible. So I don't hold Donald Trump responsible for the acts of Islamophobia by his followers. Donald Trump didn't tell you to throw a brick through that mosque's window... Donald Trump didn't tell you to beat up that poor Muslim guy or that poor Sikh guy you mistook as Muslim on the street. I hold the person who committed the crime responsible. And while I do agree that a lot of Donald Trump's rhetoric can be disgusting and horrific, if no one followed him or no one listened to him, then he would have no power. Donald Trump's power is derived from the people who follow him, not by Donald Trump himself when you hold the instigator of speech or expression responsible instead of the instigator of action, it is, without a doubt, a violation of freedom of expression and something that people on both sides of the political spectrum use to silence their opponents or aspects of society they don't like. The worst, though, is when people will use instigators of expression to absolve instigators of action. An example of this would be someone who tries to absolve someone who sexually assaulted or raped a woman because of what she was wearing at the time. To me, the clothing you wear falls into your right of freedom of expression. And therefore, you have the right to wear whatever clothes you want. I even believe you should have the right to wander around naked if you want to. So, when I hear people make the argument that women should watch what they wear because if they go out for a night on the town scantily clad, they are just asking to be sexually assaulted, it saddens me greatly because this is a very overt way of controlling a woman's freedom of expression. It makes absolutely zero logical or moral sense to hold her responsible for what she chose to wear and not the person who sexually assaulted her. You know the person who actually committed the crime. After all, women have just as much right to freedom of speech and expression as Donald Trump does. And I will do my best to defend both their rights. After all, the feminists aren't always wrong. The one thing I love about this podcast is that I just spent the first half of this email making what would be perceived as a right-wing argument, and then the second half making what would be perceived as a left-wing argument. And one thing you'll find is I do like to dance around the political spectrum more than a little bit. Anyway, great question, Mike. Thanks so much for sending it in. I think it yielded a lot of interesting discussion. And even though I know I probably didn't exactly answer the core of your question, I hope that response was adequate nonetheless. Our last question comes from Patrick Murphy. He writes, Hi, I really like the podcast so far. And I hope it works out well for you. I'd like to address how out of hand some of the anti-PC sentiment has gotten. It seems that people are using it as a shield to defend whatever immature or rude thing they say. In particular, I see a lot of Trump supporters using it in this fashion. You think my views are inappropriate? Well, you're just being a politically correct moron. I'm worried that this thinking might make it possible for candidates like Trump to actually win elections. Thanks for listening. So, I know we have been talking a lot about Donald Trump in this segment. And I guess that is to make up for the lack of Trump talk in the last couple podcasts. Because, like him or not, he's still a political force in the world, and he still needs to be addressed in some shape or form. With that being said, if you've been listening to the podcast so far, then you've probably been able to tell that free speech is something hugely important to me and that restrictions on our speech and our expression should be kept to an absolute minimum, whether those restrictions come in the form of laws or other governmental methods or whether those restrictions are much more subtle societal methods of restricting freedom of expression. So I definitely wouldn't consider myself pro-PC, and I'm making quotation marks, you know, the quotation mark gesture with your hands. But at the same time, I'm not anti-PC either. I'm just pro-expression, because even though the so-called anti-PC camp is pro-freedom of expression, I oftentimes see them using the exact same tactics to censor expression as the PC camp. A great example of this comes from your email, in which Trump supporters will disregard, ignore, or otherwise try and quash the opinions of their political enemies by simply dismissing them as PC. This is just as bad as disregarding someone's opinion because they happen to be a Trump supporter. Ultimately, whatever you think of Trump, he has the right to say what he wants to say. And his supporters have the right to believe what they want to believe. As stated before, I'm not a fan of Trump. And not because I'm PC or anti PC, but because I believe his policies and ideas would be detrimental to the welfare of not just the people of the United States, but the world if he were elected and able to pursue his stated agenda. And I will happily debate any Trump supporter. On those terms, just as in episode two, I said I would happily debate any advocates of hate speech laws based on the principles of freedom of expression and speech. The fact is, to any Trump supporters out there who dismiss their opponents based on the fact they may or may not be PC, they are just as bad as those they claim to dismiss. The fact is, dismissing anybody out of hand for the political beliefs they hold or the labels in which they choose is not only detrimental to the furthering of human knowledge and understanding, but it is the exact opposite of what being an independent thinker means. So, my advice here goes out to all people from all shades of the political spectrum, which is never dismiss your opponents. Always engage with them and their ideas. You may be surprised in what you learn. And you may be surprised in how much in common you have. So even though I'm not a Trump supporter, I would happily have a beer with one and engage in friendly political debate and discussion. And that goes for anyone else I disagree with. Because while I do believe in unfettered free speech, I don't believe all speech is created equal. And the only way the cream of free speech will rise to the top, so to speak, is through honest debate and discussion of ideas. So, to answer your question, Patrick, yes, I do believe in some cases the anti-PC rhetoric has gone too far. And that is when they use labels such as PC in order to dismiss and stifle other people's very legitimate opinions. Anyway, thanks for the question, Patrick. I hope my response was satisfactory. And with that, we are at the end of the fourth episode of Naples Ultra. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I hope you will join us next week for the fifth episode of Naples Ultra and our second argument episode. I'm particularly excited for next week's episode as it will focus on one of my passions that I rarely get to speak about. We've talked a lot about granting rights and next week we're going to be talking about taking them away as we will be talking about the justice system and I will be making an argument for judicial reform. So stay tuned for episode 5 of Naples Ultra, Crime and Punishment. Before I go and announce this week's question and read the responses from last week, I wish to make a request of the listeners. And that is, as this podcast is starting out, one of the most helpful things anyone can do to help it grow is to spread the word. And one great way to do that, is through reviews specifically on iTunes. So, I'm going to make an open request and ask for you listeners to spend some time writing a review on iTunes. But also, I'm going to do something a little different, and that is make requests to specific people to write reviews. So, I request to both Sam and Jake, who wrote in EU arguments for our last episode, to write reviews For Naples Ultra on iTunes. And with that, you probably already know the question for this week's episode, which is, when it comes to freedom of expression, do you believe there are different rules for private citizens and public figures? Thank you once again everyone for listening, and let me take you out with the responses to last week's question. Jay Graham writes, To answer your question, I think that an enlightened dictator would not be the best form of government. Although enlightened, the government would still never truly have a dictator that holds the best interests of all the people. How that dictator was raised could create some biases and prejudice. The dictator will always look out for the best interests of the majority of the population, but leaving out the minority. Let's say our dictator passes a gun law that eliminates guns in the country, and the majority of the population rejoices on the new policy, while the rural minority sees their flocks devoured by predators. Although the dictator thinks he is working for the country's greater good through absolute control, he now has a repressed minority. Let's say that minority now grows to 49% of the population that wants guns back. Is the dictator truly enlightened if 49% of the country disagrees with him? Is he truly working for the best interests of the people? It is impossible to govern a crowd of people with only one point of view. Steve Fuller writes, No, I don't believe an enlightened dictator is the best form of government. The wisdom of the people is always correct. Bjorn Fitzroy writes, I personally believe the best form of government would be some sort of immortal wizard, but barring that, democracy's probably the best way to go. Thanks again everyone, and I'll see you all next week.